What is happening, everyone? Welcome again to The Window, Canada sports betting podcast. Ahead on today's episode of The Window, as close to a perfect NFL Sunday as we probably will ever get, 6-0 in our best bets, and ever so close to a massive payday in the Moneyline bucket. Ah. We're going to talk some truth about analytics and how that affected our bets on Sunday, who knows what they're doing, and who doesn't. A pair of Monday matchups to discuss, including a big one for us in Big D. Plus, the World Series matchup has been made and why I think the series line is out of control. It's time to head to the window. Let's go! Welcome to The Window. I'm your host, Matt Russell. Monday morning after a beautiful Sunday. Hope everybody enjoyed that one. We're going to get into that in a second, but we've got two games on Monday. We've got some Monday night football, and we've got some Monday Eve, I guess, late afternoon football, something along those lines. Uh, You probably know my position on these games by now, right? One's a little bit more solid than the other one. Um, Starting off, 4 p.m. game, Buffalo plus the six is where we can get it right now. Um, Again, never comfortable necessarily betting against the Chiefs, right? But we've seen enough holes in this team from a offensive standpoint, and that's, you know, that's all relative, right? Like, are they going to put up 24 to 28 points? Yeah, probably. But from a defensive standpoint, I believe that the Bills can do the same. So I think this game ends up being a shootout. Uh, Obviously, not exactly rocket science there because we're looking at a game that's you know, the total's 56 at, right? So basically, you know, in theory, 28 per team. You factor in the point spread, right? So it's closer to like 30, you know, to 26, 31 to 25, like that kind of that kind of split. So, if, you know, I think the Bills can keep them under 30 points. I think the Bills can get into the high 20s. So give me the plus six there. Plus six, obviously a key number in this day and age in the NFL for a couple of different reasons. One, obviously, PATs occasionally get missed, right? Um, We've seen that from both of these teams this season. And more importantly, if we go to overtime, we want that plus six to sort of, you know, worst case scenario, we get jammed up and, you know, Kansas City wins on a touchdown, which of course you could see that happening, right? We might have a scenario like Tennessee and Houston where it's like, oh, whoever wins this coin toss is going to score a touchdown and going to win the game. And so you don't want it to come down to that with if you're sitting there at plus five and a half um, and, and the like. And so, you know, would this be a contest play if the line was six? You know, still probably no, because betting against the Chiefs is no fun. Um, so I wouldn't consider this on the best bet level, of the stuff that went 6-0 and this past weekend. It's just a regular size bet. It isn't a value bet where we're just sort of putting sort of a, you know, modest sum on a game the way that we did with maybe, say, Houston plus four yesterday. Uh, it's really just a regular size bet that you'd make on kind of anything else. Uh, but make sure that you get the plus six. If you have to kind of pay minus 115, uh, I think that'll probably be worth it. Uh, or at least sort of long term, that's uh, that's worth it. Uh, the big game, though, the one that again, and I like, I rarely sort of talk about my confidence levels in games because you know if you've been following along here, and if you sort of you know if you're new to the podcast, if you're new to sports betting, right? Like the threshold for success, what we're trying to do here is we're trying to win 55 percent of our bets that are lined at minus 110, right? So our spread bets, our pickums, all of that kind of thing. 
And if we're trying to do that, then we need to be 60% sure of the bets that we make. So there's no such thing as a lock, right? Like me, the only time I ever say the word lock is literally telling you that there's no such thing as a lock, or if I'm mentioning Drew Lock, which we'll get to a little bit later on in the show. Uh, so there's no such thing as any guarantees, anything like that. And so in general, if you say, well, how certain are you of blank game? I might say if it's a big bet, right? If it's a key play is if it's a contest play, we, we're veering into sort of the 65, 66%. A bet that I think is going to win that percentage of the time because we need to it, we need it to win at a 65% level to compete in these contests, right? Talked about it on Sunday about how we are sitting sort of just below um, 60%, which, you know, is an okay place to kind of just be hanging out, but to be in the contest in a meaningful way, we need to be hitting at a 65% level and we need to do so over the course of the long term. And there's plenty of time left in the season to do that and all of that kind of stuff. So the point is, if it's a contest play, if it's a, you know, last cut, right? We, you know, talked about that, how we had sort of five main plays, two last cuts. If it's, if that's the case, then they need to be 65% sort of certainties, which of course is no certainty at all. This Dallas game, I can't remember being this confident about a game. Like, it just lines up perfectly, right? You, you know, we've seen the line movement, of course, talked about that last week, going from the two and a half, thought, hoped, prayed we could get three with Dallas, uh, used Dallas in the teaser bucket, right, as a prominent uh, piece to get them up over the seven at plus seven and a half when they were plus one and a half on the game. We're now seeing it cross over, right? It's jumped the fence. Remember it opened, you know, pre-DAC injury, minus three, minus three and a half, something along those lines. Hopped the fence to Arizona being the favorite and has now jumped back to Dallas being the favorite. And so, you know, from a football standpoint, right, we always kind of look for, our, you know, from a football standpoint, like what is the handicap and like why is this why can we be confident in a number that, you know, has moved, that maybe has moved the opposite direction of where people sort of think it was going to go, all of that kind of stuff. And it's sort of a three-part thing. One, the big news that is maybe still under the radar is Leighton Van Der Esch uh, looks like he's back for Dallas, right? Middle linebacker, guy who runs that defense. And for the longest time, Sean Lee was that guy, and then Van Der Esch kind of took over and pushed him out. And if there's anything you could say about the Dallas Cowboys defense, it's just disorganized, right? Like that's what's caused them to be bad on third down conversions against all of that kind of stuff. And so that when he comes back, it isn't just a matter of like, oh, they're going to get up. They're getting a better guy to, you know, that's a better tackler that is better in pass defense. That is this, that or whatever. No, they're getting their coach back. They're getting the organizer back from a defensive standpoint. And I think that's huge, right? The team in general getting a little healthier from a defensive standpoint, um, even beyond Vander Esch as well. And so you're going to get the best Cowboys defense, especially given sort of the extra day here to prep that you're going to have all season against a Cardinals defense that Frank, or Cardinals offense, excuse me, that frankly isn't as good as people think in their mind's eye of seeing Kyler Murray and DeAndre Hopkins and some of the games where they've been cooking against, say, Washington or the Jets. And it's like, well, you know, those games are all fine, but like there was also some pretty bad results. Two, you know, going up against the Lions. Again, not exactly a defensive juggernaut through the first quarter of the season. Going up against 
you know, Carolina, the Carolina Panthers, not necessarily, you know, a top 10 defense. And so when you're talking about sort of overrated, underrated, right? Like all you're hearing is about how bad the Cowboys defense is. And the reality is it's like, it's bad. It's just going to get better with Van Der Esch being back. The Cardinals offense is really good. No, it's not really as good as you think. So a little bit overrated there from a flip, you know, the script standpoint, right? We go Dallas offense. Well, Dak Prescott's out. Everybody knows that, right? Like, it's not like you make the bet because Dak Prescott is out because everybody already knows that that's built into the point spread. That's why the line came out minus two and a half for the Cardinals and people were still betting it. And we thought we might get three because people were still betting on the Cardinals. So he's out. We know that. We know Andy Dalton's in, right? And we know at least, though, that Andy Dalton has had a full week of reps, right? Obviously, that's not ever been the case at, the, at any point. He didn't even get preseason, you know, game action, which is a type of thing that you might get, you know, a quarter or two per game uh, in the preseason after Dak comes out after one series in a couple of these games. So you're now at least getting, you know, pre-week, you know, reps in a long week, right? Like, had they have had the extra day here, um, no other discernible new injuries to that offense where you'd go like, well, blah, 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 practiced all week, but he's questionable and he's out, and now they've got some other random, you know, receiver in or, you know, another random, um, you know, offensive lineman, right? Like, the offensive line, a position that needs time to gel, right, is, you know, has an extra week to prepare now that they know guys like Tyron Smith are out for the season. So the offense isn't going to be the best it's looked all season because obviously Dak Prescott is a big deal, but it's still going to be fully functional. Andy Dalton is a professional quarterback that when things were going well for him, he could move the ball down the field. And when we sort of think of Andy Dalton, we think of him in some of these circumstances where he was without his best players in Cincinnati, right? Playoff games without A.J. Green. Uh, you know, without any real legitimate run game, right? He finally got Joe Mixon at a point in time where the offensive line was in complete shambles for Cincinnati, which it still is, by the way. So, you know, from an offensive standpoint, like they can still move the ball against the Cardinals defense that is without Chandler Jones. And I could make the case that Chandler Jones being out for the Cardinals is a bigger detriment in this single game and maybe for the rest of the season than Dak Prescott is for the Cowboys, because the you know the Cowboys have a professional quarterback that they can turn to who can run the plays, who can get the ball out on time and get the ball in the hands of a lot of really good players that he can rely on. Well, who's Chandler Jones or whoever's replacing Chandler Jones? Who's you know who's that guy going to rely on? Right? He doesn't get to, you know, move the ball around. He doesn't get to sort of point to different guys and put it in their hands defensively. He was the guy who was, you know, the pressure getter. He was the guy forcing the quarterback into bad decisions. And all the other players on that defense were relying on him to force the quarterback into making mistakes. And they would take advantage of those mistakes, right? So it's obviously a little bit different where it's like he's the centerpiece and the goods kind of flow out from what he does on the field, right? When he gets pressure, you know, interceptions happen. And it isn't because necessarily of great coverage. It's because balls were getting thrown inaccurately. Well, if Andy Dalton has time, and he's not going to need a ton necessarily, but if he has time to get the ball in the hands of the good players on the Dallas Cowboys, which of course are the three wide receivers and Zeke Elliott, then he's going to get, he, you know, he's going to be able to do that. The Cardinals defense isn't going to be able to just, you know, <laughs> replace Chandler Jones, a guy who's like a 20 sack type of a guy. So, um, 
you know, massive overreaction on the line move. The line is starting to react more, you know, in more favor of the Cowboys, literally favoring them at minus one, I believe, right now. And it's the type of thing that that line move, it's not like it's moving across three. It's not like it's moving across seven where you could be sort of right about things and get backdoored late because it doesn't really matter. In this case, right, like the Cowboys could just win this game going away and it doesn't really matter whether you got plus one and a half or minus one or anything along those lines. I'd be very surprised to see this game land uh, you know, as a one or two point game either way. If the Cardinals take a lead at any point and this number somehow, you know, becomes a plus money money line or even we get that plus three for uh, Dallas, I will be just absolutely destroying that from a betting standpoint. So best case scenario, Cardinals win the toss, go down and score a touchdown. Like that's the dream. So we'll see if that happens. Um, but again, quite confident in Dallas tonight, which is strange because I'm 4-0 in the Circa Million this week. And the idea that, you know, all we need is a Monday night game to get, you know, get there and we win and we go 5-0, and it's just a thing that doesn't happen, right? Like, we always kind of lose that last game, whether we go in 3-1, and you know, anything like that. And it's just like that last game obviously is going to leave the taste in our mouth going into this next week uh, and getting us to 5-0 and and moving us up to 19-10-1 and and back into that sort of 65% range, uh, obviously uh, a really big deal uh, when it comes to the contest stuff. So let's get into the Sunday stuff. Um, so, you know... <laughs> You know, we call the segment Don't Look Back in Anger. And it's just, you know, is it a matter of, all right, we got to look back at like the stuff we screwed up or, you know, what went wrong for us or all of that kind of thing. And in this case, not a ton went wrong. So the list of games that from a spread standpoint before the game started that we got wrong, the list is Houston plus four. That is the list. Now, there were some other bets that were lost, right? Moneyline stuff, we're going to get into that. The live stuff we'll get into as well. But from an against the spread standpoint, we got one game wrong. Houston plus four, which of course was a game that by and large had no business not covering. Now, this was just a value play that before the game started, once it's hit four, it was like, okay, these two teams are just going to play a back and forth game high octane offenses, atrocious defenses, and, you know, we'll sort of let the chips fall where they may. And for basically the entire game, the chips were falling pretty good, right? The game was even off of a tie, right? Which we were trying to avoid overtime. Of course, we didn't avoid overtime. And in part because uh, the Texans go for it for a two-point conversion when they're up seven. So they go for it to go up nine. And I'll try to get through this sort of as quickly as possible because it's not it's not all that betting related, but there are some sort of betting takeaways here. Uh and you can kind of take away whatever you want from this. But the point of the matter is, that was the right decision for the Houston Texans to try to end it right there, right? If they go up nine, they end it right there. This is, in a different way, of course, the same thing as the Minnesota-Seattle game, going for it on fourth down versus kicking the field goal to go up eight. When you are going up against Russell Wilson, when you were going up against a team like the Titans, who you haven't been able to stop all game. We're not talking about a 20 to 20 game here. We're talking about a game in the mid to high 30s. And so the idea that they were just going, oh, let's just kick the two and, you know, kick the extra point, go up eight and like, we'll stop them. 
on the two-point conversion because that's the only thing that we're talking about here, right? Because if you stop them before they get the touchdown, it doesn't really matter what you do. So this isn't a vote of confidence on your defense to not let them go down the field. This is a vote of confidence on your offense the same way it was a vote of confidence on the Vikings offense to get a half a yard against Seattle. If you win this game, it's over. And by all the metrics, all by the analytics, there's a better than 50% chance of you getting that. Now you'll say, well, wait a second, like two-point conversions are about a 50-50 proposition. But we're taking that as a sample size of a whole, right? So we're taking bad offenses against good defenses that are kind of desperately trying to come back. We're talking about, you know, the two-point conversions in games where it's like, well, let's just make, let's get this up to 14 instead of 13. Like some lesser stress two-point conversions. But when we're talking about an offense in the Texans that had been cooking along against a defense in the Titans that's not very good, the number has to be closer to 60%, for example. I'd make the case that it's higher than that, but the number has to be at least 60%. So you've got a 60% chance that you're just ending the game right there and you don't have to worry about anything else. And if you fail, which they did, but if you fail and that 40% doesn't, you know, come pops, it's, you know, rears its ugly head, you, they still have to go all the way down the field on you to score that touchdown. And as much as that's sort of maybe the favorite in this situation, they still have to do it. And so for me, like going down, you know, and scoring a touchdown is still like a 50-50, maybe it's 55% for Tennessee, but like they still have an opportunity to stop them the same way that the Vikings had an opportunity to stop Seattle a week ago. And, you know, having a couple of fourth downs and all of that kind of thing that was sort of, and made it even more improbable mathematically that the Seahawks would score that touchdown. Now it was a little bit easier for Tennessee in this situation, but again, we get down to a point where the clock is an issue and they score the touchdown with, you know, whatever, eight seconds left or whatever it was. And again, like there's a possibility they don't score that touchdown. So you have to add that into the probabilities, right? Then of course, there's like the slight possibility that the Titans miss the extra point, which when it's the Titans and we're talking about place kicking is maybe higher than the three, four, 5% that the numbers insist uh, or suggest that an extra point, you know, conversion is. And then, even then, you then still get to go to overtime in a situation in a high-scoring game that really everybody pretty much believed whoever wins this coin toss is going to go down and score a touchdown, right? Like, if you watch that game, especially the second half, and you don't think that that was the circumstance, I just don't really know what to tell you, right? Factor in, in-game situation, the Titans are without their left tackle, Taylor Lewan, you know? Pro Bowl left tackle, gone, gone for the season, and as much as like the Titans were moving the ball down the field, right? All it takes is one JJ Watt strip sack, of course, something that he did earlier in the game, to sort of, you know, give the Texans the advantage. That's even if they lose the coin flip, which of course the coin flip is a 50 50 prob- you know, uh, probability. And so you've got, okay, we could win this game with a 60 ish, maybe more uh, probability on a two point conversion. Okay, we could win this game by stopping them. Uh, from driving, you know, the length of the field or sort of 80, 85 yards, whatever, or excuse excuse me, 80 to 75 yards um, down the field. Okay, that's, you know, about a 50-50 probability. Maybe it's even a little bit lower than that, but that still has to be accounted for. Okay, maybe there's a chance he misses the extra point. Maybe there's a chance that they go for two, by the way. Like, what's to say that Vrabel wouldn't go for two there? At which point, sure, I would put the Titans at a 60 to 65% chance the same way that I would the Texans. But again, there's still at least the possibility that you stop them 
in that situation as well. So there's a bunch of different things that were pretty darn close to 60 to 50% that had to go the wrong way for the Texans. And giving yourself that extra opportunity to win the game and end it there is the right decision. And so the bigger picture point is, is when you do things like you're watching Sunday Night Football and this pregame show and they're all talking about this sort of thing, and any show that you listen to or watch today, you know, you go and you watch PTI today. I guarantee you Will Bond doesn't like that they went for the two-point conversion. Like, I can predict that going in. He's going to rail on analytics as if he knows what he's talking about. And the man has no clue what he's talking about, right? It's completely out of touch. So, and I love him. I love that show. But out of touch. And so, just, you know, when we're trying to weed through who knows what they're talking about and who doesn't know what they're talking about, like, let's just look at the Sunday Night Football guys. And, like, they talk about how it's a bad decision. They shouldn't have done that. They should have just kicked and gone for the two, you know, gone, uh, just kicked it and and forced the Titans to go for the two-point conversion. Which, again... I think we can all agree it was probably going to be about a 60 to 65% chance, if not higher, that the Titans would have converted that anyway. When you're watching these guys, just think to yourself, like think on your own, right? Think that like, oh, these guys, just because they're up there, just because they're on TV, just because they're quote unquote experts, doesn't mean they know what they're talking about, at least in this situation. Know that they are wrong, right? And just be able to sit there and be like, these guys are idiots, right? Because then when they go and they pick the Rams across the board to win this game, you're not beholden to believe in what they're saying about that. You're not, be, you know, you're not beholden to hear all of these takes throughout the week about how there's no way, like the Packers are, you know, uh, the best team in the league and there's no way they can be beat. There, you know, this, that, or whatever. So that you can then are free to now make your own decisions and critically think and critically look at some of these matchups on a week-to-week basis and not just assume that because Team A is better than Team B or has been through the first four games, by the way, not a ton of sample size, for the first four or five games of the season, then you can now are free to kind of find the value in some of these games. And again, finding the value with Houston plus four, and again, in a very small bet, this has nothing to do with the bet, we also bet the over, we split on the game, it's not a big deal. But the point is, as we're going forward, we can see that this is how value gets created when different people, media people, your friends, however you want to put it, right? Like they're the ones that are affecting these you know, point spreads. They're creating the value and sort of telling you that the Patriots should be favored by nine points against the Broncos. And it's like, what? What did they do to deserve this? So all of that kind of stuff matters, right? Because the perception builds. And in the NFL, it builds throughout the week, right? Where it's not just one episode of PTI and then there's another game. It's five episodes. It's not just five, you know, Colin Coward shows or whatever show you listen to for sort of the entertainment factor. But don't let that garbage sort of seep in, right? Understand the math is the thing that doesn't change here. And I'm not like Johnny Math where it's like complete obsession. It's just we're talking about probabilities. And when you're assigning value to sports games and teams and all of that kind of thing, which we're doing with money lines, with point spreads, all of that kind of thing, then this stuff matters. It's funny, given how inconsequential the game was to our sort of bottom line, I didn't really think that we'd sort of start, so to speak, uh, with the Houston and Tennessee game, Uh, but here we are. But it also kind of informs the rest of the day. And so that was the only spread game that we lost. Now we lost some money lines that would have been 
nice. Some juicy stuff here. And we'll shift over to Cincinnati and Indianapolis. Now, I don't know how much maybe you saw of this game. If you had the Cincinnati money line, you probably watched a fair amount of it because it looked pretty good at 21-0. Now, we talked last week, you know, again, somewhat ironically, about how 21-point lead, and I think I you know cited probably 17 as the number because that's what happened in the Chargers-Saints game and pretty much every Falcons game that's happened all season. But that 17 points was not uh, insurmountable in any way, shape, or form lead. And that in 2020, with the fact that these games are sort of averaging in the 50s, right? 17 nothing, 21 to 3. Like these games aren't all, you know, that they're cracked up to be as far as like, okay, I can shut this one off, blah, 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 blah. So Cincinnati goes up 21 nothing. I'm not gonna lie, like as somebody who had Cincinnati plus 300 on the money line, it was a comfortable cover, you know, against the spread. But I'm sitting there going like, all right, here we go. Like, you know, let's chalk this one up. Not that I was sort of doing that, chalking it up, but going like, if we could kind of keep this going, we can chalk this one up. And if we can get a couple of our sort of coin flip games um, in the mix. And then, of course, Denver starts out and has a nice lead early as well. And you go, holy cow, like this is all kind of coming together which is, you know, the whole point, right? Like these money line parlays aren't designed to win every week. We've won them twice out of six weeks, right? So we're like, maybe we're down like a half unit on the whole thing. The point is, is that we're supposed to be doing this to try to hit one that is the quote unquote jackpot. And, you know, if you're new to the podcast or maybe, you know, over the last couple of months, I suggest, you know, and I should put it this way. If you're Canadian, and don't stop, don't don't hit pause if you're not. Um, but if you're Canadian, I talked about in an episode back in July, an episode telling you what the four sports books that you should, you should be using if you're Canadian, or that you can sort of confidently use, and the different sort of pros and cons that you can use them for. Well, we've got a new pro, and one of them is at Bet365. They will pay out your money line bet if your team goes up 17 points or more, which means the Cincinnati plus 300 got paid out yesterday on at bet 365. Now I found a little bit better odds at a different sports book. And so I used that different sports book. So I only went three and two on the money line parlay. But those of you who are out there and you know who you are, who hit four legs of it because they paid out the Cincinnati leg. It's just another thing that you sort of have to factor in. And it's something that I will be giving up a couple of percentage points on money line value, knowing that a 17 point lead is not relatively easy, but like kind of relatively easy to acquire in the NFL these days. So um, just sort of worth mentioning there that if you're going to do these money line parlays, Take it from me, somebody who, you know, it cost them some money by not doing this. Um, you should probably do it over there until some other books kind of come up with their own uh, early payout type option, right? Um, so anyway, point of this whole Cincinnati-Indianapolis game, or sort of the takeaway from all of this, is that Zach Taylor blew it. He blew it for us. This wasn't a Joe Burrow because he threw an interception late. Like, that wasn't the issue. And I could kind of go through the game. I mean, they were up 21 nothing. so first and foremost, like, they're going to need to score you know, in this day's age NFL with that defense, they're going to have to score more than 27 points. They're going to have to get more than two field goals the rest of the way. But the one field goal, the last field goal, um, not even the last field, last field goal attempt is the issue that we have, right? So Cincinnati, they're down, what? They're down one and they're driving and it's third and one. And so, you know, we talk about play calling 
a lot of the times here, sort of giving your team the best chance that they have to win. And if you're the Cincinnati Bengals and you've been moving the ball pretty well, A.J. Green, we got to give him credit, right? Came back and played his best game of the year on a week that he was getting trashed uh, online. And he was making all kinds of catches, right? Obviously a big target, a lot of third down stuff. Um, you know, Tyler Boyd, standard stuff. T. Higgins was making plays out there, you know, rookie. So there was some shoddy stuff as well. Uh, and by the way, they've got Joe Mixon, a guy who like nobody wants anything to do with out on the edge. And they decide to run P. Ryan, their backup running back, as out of the fullback position, so he doesn't even get to play in a position that he's used to playing, you know, back in the day, you know, I believe it was Oklahoma, where he was just running for 200 yards a day. He doesn't even get to play sort of his normal position, and he has to get started from a fullback spot on a down and distance at third and one, where they're sort of expecting maybe a sneak, may you know, some sort of in-the-line run where, like, they've loaded up. And that's the play that you run. And they do the little, oh, like Joe Burrow, like faked afterwards that he was going to pitch it to Joe Mixon as if the Colts were just going to fall down out of the way because they thought like Joe Mixon was running to the edge, which is the play they should have run. They should have faked the fullback and flip it to the running back. Like, when does that ever not work? They've got a mobile quarterback in Joe Burrow. So beyond the fact that like a quarterback sneak might have worked. They also could just run something, read option with him on the edge, some sort of, you know, RPO. Remember those? Those seems to have gone by the wayside in a lot of cases. You know, a ton of different stuff. And it's third and one. So, okay, if you're going to run the fullback dive, you're going, you know what? I want to see if we can make this. But if we don't, we're probably not going to use, lose any yardage on this. And we can go for it on fourth and one anyway, which is fine. I kind of get that a little bit. And they don't. They go and they trot out Fat Randy. Randy Bullock, who has shown no propensity for being clutch at any point in his entire career, including blowing a chip shot in week one against the Chargers. And they haul him out there for a 50-yard field goal. So speaking of analytics, the analytics don't say that you're going to have a ton of success on a fullback dive on third and one. The analytics say don't run Randy Bullock out there because even if he makes it, you're still only up two points and you have a crappy defense, and, the, and Phil Rivers and the Colts are probably going to go down and get a field goal anyway. You need a touchdown in this. You need to kill clock if you're going to kick a field goal, right? You need to kick, kick that field goal with like a minute left, not four minutes left. The backup plan shouldn't be, oh, he might miss this. We can then only, you know, maybe we get a stop. Maybe we only give up a field goal. Then we can score a touchdown later. Like that shouldn't be the backup plan. That's not good analytics. Of course, he misses it, and it's the exact same thing that happened to the you know Eagles earlier or the previous week against the Steelers, right? It's not like this is some foreign situation that nobody's seen before. We literally saw it in the division with the Steelers the week before. And so, of course, Bullock misses the kick, and the Colts go down, and they get their field goal, and now we need a touchdown from the Bengals, and I'm not going to fault Joe Burrow for throwing the interception, right? Like, he's forced into it at that point based on just some atrocious decision-making by Zach Taylor. So when we're looking at teams, and this is a team that won against the spread, right? So when we're talking point spreads, we won, you know, like he won. So we can't just go out and got to fade Zach Taylor every time because he's going to blow it. They put themselves in a position to win. They were up 21 to nothing. They covered the spread. They were never not covering the spread. So this isn't a, oh God, Zach Taylor, what a train wreck, whatever. It's really just saying like how easily this could have been a win, something that we could have chalked up 
into the win category. And when we're talking about analytics, maybe if Zach Taylor had any clue on how the analytics worked, he would have made a positive expected value uh, decision at any point in time. Uh, Elsewhere, the other game that didn't get there as the money line underdog, in a way, somewhat easier to take, but in another way, not. And, you know, again, if the theme is analytical decision-making here, we need to talk about the Washington football team here. So tied 13-13, Kyle Allen, you know, soul-crushing fumble, uh, ball bounces perfectly for the Giants, right into a guy's lap, and he runs for the touchdown to go up 20-13. to 13. And a game that, again, we worked, we worked so hard. We worked so hard to get our plus three with Washington earlier in the week so that even, you know, the game was a three-point game throughout, tie game late. We're feeling pretty good. The Giants haven't done anything on offense all game long. And then that happens. And now we're down 20 to 13. And we now have to rely on a touchdown for the Washington football team offense. And that's not a great place to be in a final drive situation. But what's our favorite phrase? Lo and behold, lo and behold, the Washington football team scores the touchdown. 38 seconds left, something along those lines. And our boy, Ron Rivera. And you'll remember from Carolina, right? Riverboat Ron, because he's, he's going for it. You know, he's going for it on fourth down. He's going for two. And then he's like, no, no, I want to be called Analytics Ron. Analytical Ron is my nickname. And this is where the sort of analytics thing falls apart because it sort of gives it a bad name. Because at no point do the analytics say here with 38 seconds left, and I believe the Giants had all their timeouts, that this was the right decision. It's the wrong decision for a couple different reasons. Decision one, there's 38 seconds left, and the Giants could, with you know two, three decent plays, get into field goal range and win the game anyway. Two, and this has to do with play calling, right? Like the, the Washington football team controls the play that they're going to run here. So if it's a specialty play, and I would love to see sort of statistics on the success rate. Like we talk about, you know, the success rate of a two-point conversion being like 51, 52%, essentially 50-50. But what's the success rate when you have a play? And I'll sort of use like Philly special, even though it wasn't a two-point conversion. But like a Philly special type play where you're like, this is the play we're running. There is one freaking option. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. You know, like the, the shovel pass type play, right? Like the old like Travis Kelsey shovel pass that seems to work at like 100% uh, rate. Stuff like that, where it's like, this is the play we're running. This is the guy we're throwing it to. This is the guy who's getting the ball, and we're going to live with what happens. Well, they don't run that, right? And those are the types of plays that I think work at a higher rate than 50%. But they don't. They run the like, well, we'll snap it back to Kyle Allen, and we'll just kind of hope for the best. And he'll throw it, even though he's going to have to throw it through somewhere between three and five guys on any given moment, right? Whether you've got defensive linemen sticking their hands up in a short space, whether you've got, you know, whether they've dropped seven or something into the end zone, like you've, and it's a guy who's not particularly mobile. I mean, he is sort of mobile, but he just got his brain blown out by the Rams in the previous week where he missed the rest of the game. So it's not like this guy's looking to go dive for the pylon here. It's not like they're going to run a quarterback draw. And if they did, I'd actually be kind of impressed because nobody was expecting Kyle Allen to run in that situation because of that previous game situation. So you're already running a play that is not 50-50. It's probably closer to 
know, 40%, 35%, 33%, something along those lines, maybe even lower. And it works about as, as well as you'd expect. Kyle Allen rolls out, and he doesn't find anyone, and just kind of throws it aimlessly into the end zone. Why players don't just throw the ball really directly in the air, like throw it 50 yards in the air and have it land sort of torpedo downwards and a bunch of people can just run and jump for it like a mini Hail Mary. Like the whole, like, I'm just going to kind of throw it away or throw it into this space and hopefully Superman comes in and dives and catches it is completely ridiculous. Uh, reason number three, uh, kick, the, kick the extra point. Let's go to overtime against a team that hasn't moved the ball offensively since the first quarter. So it's not like Tennessee and Houston where, okay, coin flip's coming. Whoever wins this, probably running down the field and scoring a touchdown because they've scored, you know, we've scored 70 combined points. This game's 20 to 20, theoretically, which ironically is exactly what I said the score might be on the Sunday show. Go back and listen. I was talking about the totals and how the number was 42 and a half and how I'm like, you know, they could play really sloppy football. And this game could be 20-20, and a field goal gets us uh, gets us over. And by the way, like I'm not super sure this game even anybody scores in the overtime, right? So it's like, but you can't go. Well, let's go for it now because I don't expect either of us to score, and I don't want to tie. Like we can get to that point if that's the case. Go for it on fourth and five from your own 40 or some other situation that might happen in this game. So if you lose this coin toss and the Giants get the football. So what? That's almost maybe the better situation, right? Like you've stopped them throughout the game. You know, force a punt. Get the ball back so that now all you need is a field goal. Like that's the most likely scenario. Or you get the ball and you kick a field goal and then you stop the Giants. Like that's, the, that's an actual option in that game. That's knowing what's going on in this football game and going like, okay, like what kind of game are we in here? Like the Texans and Titans, you know, know what type of game they're in. When they go for, when the Titans, excuse me, when the Texans go for it for two to go up nine, they know the game that they're in. They know. They know that this is our chance. Our offense against their defense is the best chance that we have to win this game. What about that first 59 minutes and 22 seconds indicated to you that your offense against their defense in a one-play situation that at the best of times or sort of over the course of time is a 50-50 proposition, what would give you the, the audacity to believe that that's the case? So don't come to me and call yourself analytics wrong when you're not doing the math at all. So that's the frustrating part because the people are going to like lump the people, <laughs> the, the, the people, uh, the human beings out there, the analysts, the talking heads are going to lump that decision in with the Texans' decision. And it's just wrong. Meanwhile, like nobody's going to mention that Zach Taylor is an absolute disaster when it comes to these types of decisions because there wasn't a two-point conversion. It was a fourth and one field goal attempt, right? They'll, they'll, they might show the highlight. They might be like, Randy Bullock had a chance to take the lead. And it's like, okay, now, you've, now we're blaming it on Randy, right? Which like, if you're putting Randy in a bad spot in a spot that he's barely 50% in for his entire career, i.e. over 50-yard field goals then that's still on you. So like the coaching in this NFL, like we're the laundry list, the list of coaches that we can't, that we just go like, can't bet on that coach, can't bet on that coach, can't bet on that coach. And in this case, the one sort of saving grace in all of this is that it saved us the Washington plus three. So if you're sitting there at Washington plus three or Washington plus two and a half, you're loving 
dumbass Ron for, for going for it. For two, because as soon as he puts the two fingers up, you know, like, we're winning this bet. We're winning the plus three. And yeah, I understand there's a possibility the Giants could, in overtime, score the touchdown and we end up losing the plus three, which again was one of our big bets of the day. But just from a money line standpoint, from a sort of football standpoint, which, you know, we like talking about here beyond sort of the specificity of point spreads and who to bet on, all of that kind of thing. And maybe it sort of informs us that going forward, right, in close games where Washington is a two, three point underdog, or if they're a two point favorite in some sort of bizarre situation, maybe it's when they play the Giants next when they're at home you know why wouldn't Washington be favored by two and a half if the Giants could be favored by two and a half maybe the Washington could be so we know right like there's it's not as simple as like key numbers don't matter because Ron Rivera doesn't really understand the analytics that he sort of preaches um, or sort of assigns himself um, to believe that he did so those two don't get there Um, the good news is Denver right plus 350 that gets there to uh, help us out. Um, more stressful than it needed to be. Speaking of coaches that are not, it's not going to be mentioned that they did their best to blow the game, right? Vic Fangio, week after week, throw him on the list. Congrats on the win for your six field goals and your 18 points, but you're throwing the ball deep into double coverage with Drew Locke after he just threw an interception on first down with three minutes to go, where your run game has been the key to your game the entire game. <laughs> and you just need a first down here after three carries and the Patriots are going to, you know, run their timeouts and all of that kind of stuff. You're running the clock out. Why are you going deep with Drew Locke? Aaron Rodgers, sure. Tom Brady, maybe. Drew Brees, I suppose. Justin Herbert, fine. Drew Locke, what are you doing? And so, you know, the Patriots almost tear our hearts out by coming back and winning the game. Fortunately, the Denver defense, which... Hadn't been great. Think about all the points that the Denver defense gave up to the Jets on that Thursday night game. Just think about that for a second. And that a bye week, you know, sort of the the involuntary bye week comes up, and now all of a sudden their defense is much better? Hmm. It might be important to have preparation time, to have time to get things figured out. That the preseason might matter. Now, I know they weren't playing exhibition games during this bye week. But it gives them more time to get things sort of figured out. And, of course, the Patriots, meanwhile, you know, were testing guys for COVID and all of that kind of stuff. And the, the, the uh, facilities closed and all of that kind of stuff. And I completely understand that that would be problematic for your team, right? Denver didn't—so they're not coming in on a level playing field, right? Denver didn't have their facility closed for a portion of the time. Denver didn't have their starting quarterback quarantined for everybody, from everybody else, for a period of that time, right? So it's hard to blame the Patriots for being completely dis- disorganized and disheveled in that one game. We've certainly seen much better from them over the course of the season. And even with even with Brian Hoyer. Um, so, you know, sort of a lesson, like all not all of this stuff is equal. It isn't sort of just a, a matter of rest. Like what's the day-to-day situation that your team is kind of stuck with Um, based on this COVID stuff, right? And for every one of these, you get Tennessee coming out and just like, you know, winning easily against Buffalo in a game that, you know, you would have thought that they would have issues. Maybe New England should have done some secret practicing stuff. Uh, At any rate, uh, and that would have been killer, right? Because we're watching this game and now it's like Denver's going to blow it. We just watched Cincinnati blow it. We just watched, you know, 
riverboat Ron blow it. And you're like, are we really not going to get any of these? Or are we only going to get one? And that one at the time, of course, because Denver won, it was this, the second one, was Bears. Plus one and a half, uh, a big bet, right? A uh, whatever you want to call it, right? Contest pick. If you sort of blanket everything as sort of a contest pick, um, contest eligible type of a pick. Bears win plus one and a half. Uh, they never were down. And it's the defense, right? And this is an era where it's really hard to, to shut a team out. Not necessarily from like a literal standpoint, because the Dolphins literally did it to the Jets, but from sort of a theoretical standpoint in that like the one touchdown that Carolina got stemmed from a 40-yard you know, pass interference penalty that was just absolutely embarrassing for the entire league. Like, two guys just literally jumping for the ball, hands equally, you know, tied up with each other, you know, cornerback looking at the ball, all of the stuff that you want a cornerback to do. Like, he literally came off the field, and I swear to you, the coach said to him, do that, play that every single time. Like, that will never get called except for in this one instance. Well, of course, Carolina gets the ball at the one-yard line. They score the touchdown, their only touchdown, of the game. And so the idea of sort of shutting a team down now in the NFL, because it's so easy to get these chunks of yardage on BS calls is 16 points. And it is not necessarily shutting the other team out, shutting the other team down. It's getting the first interception the way the bears got it, giving their team a short field so that Nick Foles doesn't have to drive the ball down the field. And again, it's another win for the bears. They are now five and one and everybody's going to hate it. And everybody's going to say the Bears stink and their quarterback sucks and all that. And they're not necessarily wrong. Again, a lot of really atrocious decisions and a really atrocious throws by Nick Foles. Like, this game should have been long over if Nick Foles was any good at all. But again, like, as much as it's 2020 and nobody's expecting to win the Super Bowl here, we're just trying to extract value. So if week after week... The Bears are being devalued because people aren't giving their defense credit and they're trashing the quarterback and all of that kind of stuff. We're going to just keep having to bet the Bears. It's going to suck a little bit, but it's been pretty good up until this point, right? Like we've done pretty well being on the Bears, right? Just that one game against the Colts and everything else uh, pretty rock solid when it comes to betting on the Bears. So, um, you know, they end up getting there. That was outstanding. Denver gets there. Washington gets there. And we're sitting there. You know, Cincinnati gets there. Pittsburgh, minus three and a half. Little bit worried, right? Like the line goes down to three. You could get a flat three on Sunday, you know, right up until game time. And just none of that made any sense. And listen, we talked about the game ad nauseum last week. And I could just I could just rehash all of that and be like, yep, we were right. Or you could go back and listen. Or if you're listening to it today, in the podcast today, you probably know, you know, what we talked about, right? Baker Mayfield, like the, the Browns coming in with prosperity. Are they mature enough? Um, are they, you know, obviously a change in scenery here from a home game against the Colts? you know, without Darius Leonard to now going into Pittsburgh. And by the way, like a game where Pittsburgh, one of the main handicaps with Pittsburgh is, do they care about this game, right? Like they go on the road all the time and lose games that they had no business losing because, you know, Mike Tomlin is a motivational coach, right? He's the uh, getting guys up to play type of a coach, right? He will drag a Duck Hodges Pittsburgh Steelers team to seven and nine or eight and eight, Right, just based on motivational angles. But he will also drag a 14 and 2 potential team to a 12 and 4, 11 and 5 because they will absolutely phone in a game at, you know, Oakland, or, you know, in this case, Las Vegas, but in the past, Oakland, at Arizona, 
Stuff that they just don't get up for. Well, you don't think they were getting up for the Miles Garrett game? The guy th- <laughs> swung his helmet at one of their players last year. Their own helmet at, at one of their players. So, uh, you know, easy wire-to-wire win there. Ben Roethlisberger didn't even have to do much. Didn't even really do all that much. Um, and the Steelers get there easily as well. So we start the day 5-0 and on the big picks. Even Philly at plus 10 which, and this is sort of worth talking about just from a sort of numbers standpoint, right? Loved Baltimore minus seven and a half. Loved's probably a stretch. Liked Baltimore minus seven and a half, minus eight. Uh, that number goes up to 10, even 10 and a half after recording on Sunday. And I talked about how at that point, like the line sort of, everything kind of shifts over and Philly is probably the right side. And listen, there was a lot of this second half of this game where you go Philly, or really the whole game, where like Philly is not the right side in this Baltimore blowing them out, you know, comfortably leading 17 nothing, and you know, all of that kind of stuff. And then this Philly team, you know, we talked about it, like maybe it's in their best interest to just sort of pack it in if they get down because of this game that they have on Thursday, but they just refuse to do so. And again, as much as we sort of chirp Carson Wentz and that first half was ugly, like he's just a guy who just never gives up and they, he gets them all the way back. First of all, inside the number at plus 10, where, we, you know, it was sitting on eight. So it's sort of like at that point, you know, Baltimore's got the ball. They just need to run out the clock. They're up eight. And you're going like, man, I really had this pegged. Like plus 10 was a good number. So was minus seven and a half. Like both things can be true. Both things on occasion can win. Well, of course, because life just isn't that easy. Baltimore has to get the ball back to Philly and Philly goes down and they score. And now I'm going like, what happened? What's going like my teaser leg, my teaser leg. Because you'll recall we teased them minus seven and a half down to minus one and a half. And you say like, you know, the whole teaser idea of getting the number under three. And I always sort of say like, I rather just tease that, you know, let's say nine, say eight and a half. I rather tease the eight and a half up to get 14 and a half because it really takes a lot for a team to get blown out and not get a late touchdown to sort of, you know, cosmetically make it a relatively close game. And there's so many situations in the NFL where a game somehow lands under a field goal, but one team still wins, that it's just not worth teasing it down to two and a half just because you're under a field goal. Like the math may suggest that, and I completely understand that. But again, it's a this day and age type of a thing. And listen, might have worked out, you know, say you tease them to two and a half. If the Eagles get the two-point conversion, it goes to overtime and the Ravens win. And now everybody's laughing because, you know, that that teaser still ended up working out. So the point is, is like the teaser leg needed to be played at the lowest possible number in the same way that the spreads need to be played at the best possible number. So if that best possible number is plus 10, plan 10 and a half, that needs to be the number that we play it at. If the number's at seven and a half for Baltimore, and that's intriguing to us, but if it goes to 10 or nine, we have to stay away at that point, or we are then reevaluate if it gets all the way up to a relatively key number in 10. So at the end of the day, this was essentially the same size of a bet as the Houston bet, a pure value. The line has gotten a little out of control. We just have to make this play type of bet. So we end up sort of splitting those, you know, kind of have to show up type of a bets. Final thing about the one o'clock games here. Um, the, I talked about how the, you know, we lost one game, a small bet against the spread. But we lost two more spread games 
in live action. Obviously not as significant as, you know, a win or even a loss in a big bet, right? The 6-0, still untouched, don't worry about that. Or, excuse me, 5-0 as far as we're talking about right now. Um, and we go and we're like, okay, what are our two live targets, right? One, li live target number one, Atlanta. They score early every single game. They blow it late. Let's not grab Minnesota minus four, minus three and a half. Let's wait and see if we can get them at a money line or a plus number or, you know, maybe even get some points. And they go up, sure enough, Falcons go up 10 nothing, And we get Minnesota plus four and a half. Great number. Minnesota's literal like next drive down to the one. Think they're going to get a touchdown. They get stopped. Goal line stand. A 10-7 game is now just a 10-0 game. And from there, it was all Falcons. And give them credit. They didn't blow it. They didn't even come close to blowing it. Say what you want like about the Vikings, and you're probably right, right? Like let down spot after the Seattle game. Thought because they lost the game, there would still be some focus there. Obviously didn't take Atlanta all that seriously, given the fact that they had fired their coach, but another, you know, put it in the sort of bank, right? Another dead coach bounce type of a situation. And is it possible that Dan Quinn's just really bad and everything that happens with the Falcons is entirely him to blame? Maybe, <laughs> might actually be, right? We'll sort of see going forward and they're actually favored this week, which of course is a situation that the Dan Quinn Falcons uh, were never never comfortable with the other game what's the target right jags we kind of like him at plus three we liked him at plus three and a half but now that it's down to plus three you know why would we bother with this when we know the lions like the falcons take big leads and then blow them they're sort of the underrated you know underspoken of version of the falcons well sure enough they get a big lead jacksonville plus ten and a half when the game was, I believe, 10 nothing or 14 to 3, something along those lines. Plus 10 and a half. Oh, we're gonna get the last touchdown. We're gonna get in the back door relatively easily in this one. And it's a 14-point game going into the fourth quarter. So you're still kind of like, all right, we can do this. Matt Stafford, check his line. It wasn't like he was working the ball down the field on his own. Uh, lighting up the Jags defense. One touchdown, one interception, 220 some odd, some odd passing yards. DeAndre Swift has the big game for the Lions. So, like, maybe that's the situation where it's like, okay, I guess the Jags can't stop the run. Well, they've done okay in the last game against the Texans in stop, you know, stopping their run game. Not that that's uh, all that impressive. Point is, is, you know, we're still into that. Like, even in the fourth quarter, you're like, okay, like, this is, I'm just waiting on this back door to happen. And it just doesn't happen. And, you know, the way I watch the NFL is at one o'clock, I kind of put the Twitter machine down and I go, okay, like I've got nine games to follow here. I got, you know, three or four screens, the remotes are going, like they're literally smoking by 3 p.m. And I'm just not going to like drag my way through Twitter. Um, but at around 4, 4.30, whenever, basically whenever the games end and we have less games going on, I then sort of go back through Twitter and it's like watching a movie that you've already seen and you're like oh okay this is the part where uh Baker Mayfield throws the interception and everybody like you know craps on him for that and like oh okay here's the part where uh you know the Texans go for two. Oh, people didn't love that like that kind of thing and so I'm going through it and like all the way through not all the way through but like at the same points that I was making these bets I go like I see people going like okay uh you know, live bet Minnesota, like, or when do we live bet Minnesota or Jacksonville, like, you know, Jacksonville, like, this is probably a really good live bet. And I'm not saying they're even tweeting to me. I'm saying like, these are just 
completely independent people. And we all sort of have the same strategy, the same idea going like, yeah, of course you bet against the Lions in the second half. Of course you bet against the Falcons in the second half. And it just didn't work. It didn't work for either one. And it felt like we were at least going to get a split, right? Like if you make those two bets, you go like one of these two things are happening for sure. And maybe we get lucky and they both do. And in this case, it didn't. But I think I would make those two bets, getting those two numbers um, every single time. So, you know, we're, we're three, uh, excuse me, two and two uh, going with the, you know, round, round robin parlay. And that's all tied to Tampa Bay. And we're four and oh, excuse me, three and oh in the circa million and five and oh overall in the best bets. And it's all leading to Tampa Bay. And of course, we are on the island, right? We are on the limb with Tampa Bay. And as much as I sort of talked about being confident in Dallas tonight, I had the similar level of confidence in Tampa Bay. It's just there was a different resistance, right? More people were on Green Bay. More people were on Green Bay than on, on the Cardinals. The, the line starts ticking. It starts moving to the point where I was able to get uh, Tampa Bay plus three at about minus 118, I think it was, right before the game. So just, you know, just in case type of thing. And so I still need them to win outright because in the contest, they're pick them. And we talked all week about them being pick them. And I'm like, I'm not going to take any pride in, you know, a two point win or even just pushing that number, right? From a financial standpoint, yeah, I'll push would be great. But like, it's still like, I expect Tampa Bay to win this game. Talked about it on Sunday, um, you know, on the Sunday podcast, talking about survivor picks. Uh, I've talked about it all week, talked about it on the On Blast podcast with Sheldon Alexander, um, all of this stuff. And... Green Bay goes up 10, 10, nothing. And they're working their way down the field, a lot of crossing routes, right? And so when you're watching games, you're like, wow, the same thing is what's working for Green Bay here. And, you know, do teams know what they're doing, right? That's the overall question. It's the question with Cincinnati. The answer is no. The answer, you know, a lot of cases, the answer is no. And as much as you want to sort of wonder what the hell Bruce Arians is up to on, a, on a, any given day, from a defensive coordinator standpoint, Todd Bowles is for my money, the best in the, in the league. He was outstanding with those Arizona teams. Um, and then he goes to the Jets and it goes badly. And we all sort of mock Todd Bowles, right? Because that's just what we do. And the reality is the Jets, meanwhile, while Todd Bowles is putting on a defensive coordinating clinic, making the appropriate adjustments to stop those crossing routes, to force Aaron Rodgers to throw to the outside, which then, of course, makes him susceptible to, I don't know, an interception or a pick six. And of course the pressure amps up, right? And all those studs on the defensive line start getting there, right? To Aaron Rodgers. And he's backpedaling and he's flinging balls out of bounds and all of that kind of stuff. Meanwhile, you know, the offense does just enough. And that's how we've handicapped Tampa Bay all season long. The offense is always going to do until they get like cooking with Evans and Godwin and all of that stuff. With Tom Brady, the offense is just going to do enough. And if they just don't turn the ball over, they're going to be a really good team. But it's going to be a defensive-oriented team. And I know that's sort of crazy to, to get your mind around, right? The same way we talk about Buffalo as an offensive team. It's hard to get your mind around Tampa Bay as defense first. And so when they play games that are going to be low scoring, where, you know, their offense is going to struggle to get to 20 points, because like with the Chicago Bears, Carolina game, unless you're playing the Jets, kind of the minimum amount of points are going to be like 14, 16, something along those lines. So if your offense can only muster 20, 
then you're going to have a problem, right? And that was the situation with the Bears game. Like that game was always going to be, however many times you want to play that game, that game's always going to be sort of in the low 20s if it even gets there. Against the Packers, with the Packers defense being not very good, and a lot of these other teams' defense not being very good, you know that you are in a full-on gunfight, right? But with the Buccaneers' defense, they're good enough that they can shut you down to the new standard that is the NFL, right? It's like the Chargers game a couple of weeks ago. Like, sure, they gave up some points. Brady threw a pick six as part of the sort of, what was it, 24-7 deficit, I think it was, something along those lines, uh, before the Chargers blew it at the end end of the first half. And so you go, okay, like, this is a different story. Like, this guy, this defense, the guys that are on this defense, they make the adjustments where they can keep a good team to 20 points. And they know that this is just a different type of a game and they're going to be able to score a bunch of points and the other team isn't. So any game where Tampa Bay gives up more than say 20, 24 points is one that I'll be incredibly surprised to see. And I'm not, you know, obviously you have to factor in Tom and his uh, penchant for pick sixes here and there so far, at least two uh, that I can recall off the top of my head this season. So as mentioned, we are and you know go 4-0 thanks to the Tampa Bay win uh, in Circa Million, tying that to Dallas for 5-0 tonight. Hopefully that goes well. As for Circa Survivor, easy peasy with the Miami Dolphins here. And, you know, this is veering into the type of situation where it's just bet against the Jets every single week, right? The bad news for us next week is they play the Bills at home. So even if we like the Bills, which of course, you know, we probably do, it's a couple of tough situations there. One, we've already used the Bills, so we can't even use them anyway, so we have to look elsewhere when it comes to quote-unquote fade the Jets as the Circus Survivor um, idea. Maybe we don't necessarily even want to, maybe Sam Darnold comes back, maybe the Bills on a short week after maybe a big win against Kansas City, maybe, Um, you know, might not be a great spot for Buffalo uh, if that ends up being the case, especially from a point spread standpoint. So we'll have to look elsewhere for that. But the good news is through six weeks, you know, we're one third of the way there, uh, avoided taking the Patriots who knocked out 50 plus people uh, and a handful of people also, I believe on Minnesota, I think a literal handful of five. So 56 people out of the 410. So now into the 300 uh, zone here, 350-ish with Survivor there. I think somebody has Kansas City. I think somebody has Arizona tonight as well. So um, we go then into, right, sweat-free, we go into Sunday night, and it's, all right, who are we going to bet on here, right? Talked all week about how, like, I can't, I'm having trouble making the case, even though the correct bet is the 49ers, right? Like, the, the thing you're supposed to bet, when that nine line opens up at three and a half, you're supposed to bet the 49ers. You're supposed to bet the 49ers at plus three, right? Like, that is, from a market standpoint, and again, once we're assigning numbers to these teams, market probabilities all of that stuff has to come into play, right? Like getting the uh, value, right? This is, you know, a lot of people talk values and like plus, you know, this or plus whatever, whatever, whatever. This, you know, the value was always on the 49ers. Now the question was, of course, can they come through? They've looked so bad and da 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 da. Jimmy G, what's his situation? So it really took up to watching the warm up and even just sort of the, you know, candy type shots, uh, TV term. Um, of the of Jimmy Garoppolo sort of warming up and he's smiling and he's in, like he seems okay and you're just kind of like huh like 
if he's good to go, I want San Francisco here. Now you go and you check the line, the line's down to two and a half. And you go, okay, like I'm not an idiot here. Once the line goes from plus three and a half to plus two and a half, something's up, right? And I don't even mean something's up as in like something's fishy. I just mean like the 49ers are definitely the right side once that happens, right? And so at two and a half, obviously no value there because we just get, you know, we missed the three and we missed the three and a half. So I, full disclosure, I bet for the 49ers. Bet the 49ers on the money line, it worked out. Um, certainly gave up enough winners this week so that, you know, I shouldn't feel as bad because I didn't tweet it. I didn't do anything like that. It was just like, you know what, this game's on. Sunday night, there's a, you know, speaking of Bet365, there's a free live betting bonus um, that they give you on Sunday night games. And, you know, so I bet the 49ers to sort of qualify for that bonus. And then literally they kicked the ball off and I bet them again before the first drive. And so now I've got the 49ers money line at like, you know, a synthetic plus 200, something along those lines, 225, I think. And whatever, the game happens. And again, it's just another example. Forget about like whether we won or lost a bet or all of that kind of stuff. But it's just another example, right? Of these road favorites and these teams that are sort of at their core, they're pretty good. And they just had a couple of bad weeks. Or in the case of the 49ers, you know, really one really bad week that sort of showed everybody like this is sort of could be a problem going forward. But again, what have the Rams have done, right? And it's like they go and I was, you know, talking to my my lady uh, while we're watching the game and they show this graphic about how like the Rams are 4-0 against the NFC East and I turned to her and I said they're showing this graphic because I think they think they're praising the Rams right now but anybody who knows anything is watching this and going like this is actually kind of an insult to the Rams because they're 4-0 against the NFC East and they're 0-1 against anybody else and anybody who knows anything about football this season knows the NFC East is absolutely garbage. And so she sort of just like kind of laughs and goes like, yeah, I, like I get that. And so it's just funny that like, again, mainstream media, you know, TV producers, all of this sort of thing. It's like, oh, let's show a graphic about how good they've been and how like 4-0 against the NFC East. And it's like that NFC East, that's the NFC East you want to talk about? Yikes. So anyway, get there with the 49ers, again, informing us more than anything that the public perception week to week in this league is the thing that drives all of the value case in point now they would have ended up covering minus three you right the look ahead line minus three and a half whatever number that you got san francisco was going to cover that and that's just again um just goes to show three and a half point dog can win by double digits and do so relatively easily no no such thing as easy things in the nfl but in that case right like, I kind of just wanted to keep betting the 49ers over and over again. Like, they're up seven, and now they were, like, favored minus 135 on the money line. I was like, do I do it again? I was like, no, don't do that. Anyway, so that's that's just, again, big picture. That's sort of informing us what to do next. Uh, before we go, a couple of things that we need to talk about. Baseball, didn't go great. Braves, plus 140, two-nothing lead, uh, up three to two. Runners on second and third, nobody out. Have you ever in your life seen a double play ground ball double play not a line drive double play in that situation ground ball double play while the braves managed to make that happen with some of the worst base running you could possibly imagine zero reason for the runner to even be going home from third to home in that situation zero reason why the runner that was on second base can't get to third base on a rundown that lasted a couple of different throws just absolutely atrocious and so you go from Second and third, nobody out to, again, maybe worst case scenario, second and third, one out if nobody runs. 
Um, in theory, first and third one out is probably the most often result of that play. And even second and third one out with the, you know, the hitter who hit the ground ball getting all the way around to second by the time that the runner at, you know, going from third to home by the time he scores. So they just blow it in every way you possibly can blow it. Even the runner doesn't get to second to even have runner on second base with two out. Just a complete disaster. And of course, you know what's going to happen next, right? Game tying home run for the Dodgers. Game, eventual game winning home run um, for Cody Bellinger. And the Dodgers move on. And the plus 140 for all of the value that we were sitting there with second and third, nobody out. And a 3-2 lead. Uh, just gets washed away. But that seems to be sort of the baseball season, uh, the baseball postseason that we've been dealing with. That being said, woke up this morning, check the odds on the series price. Tampa Bay plus 170? What? And then I go and I'm sort of scrolling back through the overnight stuff and it's like, oh, they opened plus 180, plus 185? What? I mean, listen, Atlanta gave the Dodgers everything that they possibly could handle. And that's with essentially two rookie starting pitchers pitching their butts off for games one and two, which obviously were two of the three games that the Braves won. And then just basically nothing else for four straight, essentially five straight games. And, you know, Freed ends up going, you know, pitching decently, but gives up a you know, couple of home runs and, and whatnot. And then Anderson doesn't go nearly as long as I think we would have hoped. And now it's a Braves bullpen that, again, we've been sort of talking about, like, who is decent on this, in this pen all season long. And the Dodgers got a lot out of home runs. And the Astros got a lot out of home runs. But if you're playing against the Rays, you're going to have to do a lot more than just hit home runs. And I'm not saying the Braves, or excuse me, the Rays should be favored in this series. Like that's just unrealistic from both a market standpoint and sort of a, you know, baseball standpoint. But this isn't a team, you know, this isn't some sort of fluke operation here. This is the team that was in first place in the AL this year. And I don't know, maybe if it's a longer season. It's funny, I saw some, a lot of stuff about like, oh, how the bubble, a 60 game season was going to result in like some, you know, random results, but like the top two teams still made it to the World Series. And it's like, yeah, the top two teams in a 60 game season. Like, sure, okay, the Dodgers would probably still be the top team. And I'm not saying that the Rays wouldn't be, but it's not like they were the top team going in. Right? Like they were like the fourth choice in the AL before the season started. So if the if the season does go 162 games, like there's still a possibility the Yankees have a stretch where they're fully healthy and they do pretty well. Like there's still a possibility that there's a cream rising to the top situation over in the AL Central or that, you know, Oakland, for example, like the Moneyball thing works to a point where they end up winning 100 games or something like that. So um, anyway, just kind of an afterthought thing. Point is, uh, we're betting the Rays, like plus 170 with that pitching, both from a starting standpoint and a bullpen standpoint. The Dodgers pen still in shambles. Like they're still trying to massage Kenley Jansen into like a role here. Whereas like the Rays have like four guys in their pen that's better than Kenley Jansen. The starting pitching right now, like 
Kershaw, like all of a sudden he's like a guy I need to worry about in the in the playoffs. And listen, maybe that turns out to be sort of a, a, a kick in the pants uh, if he ends up having a really nice start. But like Bueller still like barely going five, six innings here. And then like after that, it's just a complete, you know, Dustin May starts, quote unquote, starts the game yesterday and he can't find the plate. So like, what am I doing? What are we doing here? Like to me, I think this is a significant bet on a raised series price. And if that's the series price, we're going to be looking at doing game by game bets on the raise here. Like I think you are obligated at this point to do so with the raise. Might not work out. Maybe this is the year the Dodgers win the series. Like, by the way, we're also going up against history of 32 years of them not winning the World Series and it's it going wrong at various points throughout. I think they've got the better manager. I got think they got the better bullpen. I mean, I guess the lineup for the Dodgers is better, like, sure. But again, when we're playing, you know, we're playing here a seven-game series and we're playing baseball in a park that, like, you know, it's an unders ballpark type of a thing. And under baseball should favor the Rays. So for me, at plus 170, it's not a guarantee. It's not anything like that. It's just this number to me I thought was going to be, like, plus 130. So I think we're getting all kinds of value on the Rays, and I think we'll be continuing to do so over the course of this series. The same way that, listen, if you'd bet the Braves every single time, you'd probably be profitable over the course of that seven-game series, even though they lost four times because of how frequently they were plus money in some of these games. So that gets going on Tuesday. No elaborate preview, just a simple, why are the Rays plus 170, even plus 160? Really, anything better than plus 150, I think, is still pretty decent value. But grab the plus 170, uh, I believe, also over at Bet365. to do that. Uh, other than that, uh, hopefully we have a nice day here on Monday. Tomorrow we'll get into, obviously you're going to recap the quote unquote double header uh, on Monday in football. Uh, and we'll sort of, maybe we'll get some starting pitchers for the World Series. But moreover, we're going to get into week seven season starting to fly by uh, in the NFL with a rundown of the board and sort of our early week targets. Can't wait for that. Let's go 5-0. and Let's get it home here, Dallas. Let's get it done. Gang, we won some money this weekend, so do me a favor. Share this podcast around so we can grow this and have fun together. Until next time, I'll see you at the window.